All right, so we're in our third part in the series on biblical officers in the New Covenant era. And so we focused on we focused on the two continuing offices. The two continuing offices are the offices of elder and of deacon. And so we looked at 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 13, which focuses on the qualifications of both offices. And then first, uh, Titus chapter 1, verses 5 to 16, which focuses on the office of elder. And so with the office of elder, we need to remember what we've already learned, which is the fact that the office of elder, there is one office of elder that is also called bishop, pastor, and teacher. And so we see those titles throughout the scriptures. And so all elders share the same ordination. There is not a difference between a ruling elder and a teaching elder. It is the same office. And obviously there can be a differentiation in terms of the focus of work and how much work somebody puts into what kind of thing versus another, but it is the same office. We looked at the set of qualifications, and we saw that there was a requirement to be blameless, and we talked about how blamelessness is not the same as sinlessness. It has to do with conflict. It has to do with taking on biblical conflict resolution and either giving a just defense for yourself or accepting responsibility in failing. And we also talked about how there are some types of sins in the categories of qualification that can make a man unfit for office for a prolonged period of time. So there's a positive obligation to display qualification. And we looked at Deuteronomy 24, verse 5, and how it talks about a man when he gets married to be kept from public duty for a year, that he's not to go to war, not to have any public duty assigned to him. And so, looking for scripture texts, relying upon the sufficiency of scripture, this is the text that helps us to have a background to think about qualifications and to have a period of time for the positive requirement of the display of the qualification. And so, the teaching has been that a year is required of the display of the positive qualifications before a man can be considered fit for office. And so we're looking for that. We're looking for two or three witnesses who are willing to testify that a man has the qualifications that are laid out. And so as you examine yourself and as you examine other people as we consider nomination for offices, what we're doing is trying to use these and to consider do we see that in others and do we see it in ourselves. And so when a nomination occurs, one person is saying, this man has the qualifications for office. And a second person who agrees when they second that acts as a second witness. And so you need at least two witnesses to be able to have sufficient evidence to be able to say this man is qualified for office. And so those two people have to be willing to uh, say that they see the qualifications. Now, the process of testing, we talked about testing last time, that a deacon is to be tested. And that applies to the higher office as well of elder. And so the testing process involves a period of public consideration where the doctrine and character of the man would be tested. And so with a deacon, we, we look at the life of the man and we look at his doctrine in terms of does he have the ability to confess the faith without any violation of conscience? So does he uphold the confessional standard without a violation of conscience? Whereas the elder has to be able to explain it in such a way that he shows a mastery, he shows an ability to help others to get it, uh, to be able to lay it out in an organized way, and also to be able to defend it against those who contradict. And that is the job of the elder. 
So we'll be continuing with the job of the elder today in terms of the greater complexity. Next week we'll be looking at Acts chapter 6 in terms of the creation of the diaconal office and the way that the two offices are laid side by side of elders and deacons. So we'll be reading through several texts and talking about them, but the principal text I'd like to read, please stand, is from 2 Timothy So open your Bibles to 2 Timothy. You're going to chapter 3, verse 10. So 2 Timothy is a pastoral epistle. Paul is talking to Timothy. And at verse 10. But you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them. And that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at His appearing and His kingdom. Preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort, with all long-suffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, And they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you be watchful in all things. Endure afflictions. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. You may be seated. The Apostle Paul talks about the fact that Timothy has followed his has followed Paul's doctrine, followed Paul's manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, long love, perseverance, persecutions and afflictions. These are all a part of the training. This is the living alongside of Paul. And so the word of God is sufficient for instruction or training in righteousness. And Paul in applying it and living with Timothy has given example of the use of the Word of God in these various things. Persecution came to Paul. And yet the Lord delivered Paul. And Paul gives a warning for Timothy. Verse 12, Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. The persecution that comes to the believer is increased for those who are in public office 
as believers. Elders take to themselves a double way in which they are likely to suffer persecution. One, they become widely known as Christians, and so they are easy targets. And two, they take on the responsibility of conflict. They take on an obligation by the nature of the office to engage in conflict. They have to pick fights, and they have to win them. They are not allowed to simply engage in them. They are required to win them. And so the fighting to the point of victory is an excellent way to make enemies of men. And so the office of elder requires actions and an awareness that is likely to result in persecution. And aside, right next to that, in verse 13 we're told, but evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. How can we say that the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ is filling the earth, advancing, and at the same time that evil men will grow worse and worse? Well, some people try to say this is only talking about during the period of the overlap of the Old Covenant and New Covenant, and it ended with the period of time with the destruction of Jerusalem, that the men stopped growing worse and worse then. That is an overly optimistic view, and it has no basis in the context. The reality is that as the church matures, so does Satan. As the church matures, so does the world. There's a heretical philosopher named Hegel. Hegel had a theory of how ideas worked in the world, and he was basically a pantheist. He argued that everything essentially was a part of God, that the world itself was a part of God, and that the Prussian state was essentially God on earth. It's interesting, philosophers tend to find that the governments of their home countries are the best governments in the world. This seems to be a part of the nature of man to highly esteem their own countries above others. But Hegel, in seeing this view, one of the things that he said was that history has the arising of an idea, and it's a thesis. And then what happens by the very nature of things is that an opposing idea, its opposite, an antithesis, arises against it. And that in the clash of these ideas arises a mixing of the two hypotheses and a new idea. And this new idea is a synthesis. It's a second thesis resulting from the conflict of the two ideas. And that in this way, the world itself arrives at a consciousness of truth through this progress of thesis, antithesis, synthesis, over and over again. Now, that's false. But there's something close to truth there, and let me point out what it is. The eternal truth of God has been revealed and given to man in the scriptures. And error presents itself against the scriptures and draws men away. And the way that Satan's minions mature in the earth is the arising of more and more complex heresy across time. And it pushes the church to do the work that it ought to have done, but that it didn't do because of laziness, because of our desire to enjoy things other than the knowledge of God. And so what you have 
in the early church against Aurelius Augustine teaching the doctrine of the sovereign grace of God, you have a rising Pelagius the monk who said, men are born innocent. They don't need salvation from their birth. They're born innocent. Now some men do fall. And for them it's a good thing that Christ died for sinners. But if a man could retain his innocence through a life and be righteous, he could obtain a standing before God as though he were Adam. And he taught that on the other side, for those who did fall, they could receive grace. Now, this Pelagianism is an obvious heresy that teaches justification by works. It was defeated in time and history. And Augustine's doctrine became dominant. But what we have following after that is the arising of a mixture of Augustine's biblical doctrine and Pelagius' doctrine. It was called semi-Pelagianism, and it dominated the Middle Ages. And Romanism, the teachings of the papal dominion, are dominated by that doctrine. This idea of a cooperation between God and man for the salvation of sinners. In the Reformation, the pristine purity of the gospel was put forward in opposition to this semi-Pelagianism. And what arose out of the Reformed churches was Arminianism. And in the Lutheran churches, Melanchthon's doctrine, trying to take a free will and put it up against the sovereign grace of God. Now, Melanchthon repented, but that is not so widely trumpeted as the fact that Melanchthon, for a while, trumpeted free will. And so, Jacobus Arminius did not repent. And in the Reformed churches, the doctrine of a free will outside of the control of God and the freedom of the Christian even before he's converted to be able to do good and to choose God has been widely advanced. Most of the evangelical churches in America teach today that a person has the ability to choose what is good without the work of the Holy Spirit beforehand to convert the man. And so that doctrine was defeated at the Council of Dort and the Reformed churches preserved the faith. And in France, you had arise a doctrine called Emeraldianism, which taught what the Council at Dort taught in four of its five points. But it rejected limited atonement and sought to find a middle way that would be less offensive. Amaro rightly found that the limited atonement, the specific definite atonement that Christ offered his saving of the elect is the most offensive part of Calvinism. And so he found that by giving that piece away, he was able to settle the bothered minds of many who rejected it. And so we find more and more moving from Pelagianism to Semi-Pelagianism to Arminianism to Emeraldianism, you find this effort of the devil to find heresies and make them more and more subtle. Do you think that since the Huguenots perished in the fields of France, their blood giving fertilizer to the flowers of French fields, 
Do you think since the 1600s any heresies have arisen? Are there any more subtle forms of false gospels that have come into the Reformed churches? Evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. In order to be skilled at teaching, you need to be aware of what the scriptures teach. You need to be able to organize them, and you need to be aware of the development across time of what has occurred in the opposition to the truth. And that pushes a man to be more effective and skilled at communicating, knowing the ways where others have gone off to attack the truth. He will know how to avoid going off to the left or to the right. And so, when we look at the confessional standard, the confessional standard is a capturing of doctrine in the midst of that process opposing heresy. There is not a new doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, captured in the Westminster Standards. It is that old glorious doctrine, the Pauline doctrine, the Isaiah doctrine, the book of Genesis doctrine of justification. But it is brought out in systematic clarity against heresies that have arisen in time. Evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. And so there is a requirement that elders be ready that they learn about the historic controversies that have occurred before them so that they can catch up to the point where Christianity in history has been able to get clarity. But you must continue in the things which you have learned and be assured of and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them. Right? It's not a new tr- it's not a new truth being developed by the church. It's the church pulling the doctrine out of Scripture and more clearly teaching it in the face of opposition. You must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned it, and that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Now, this from whom you have learned it, many times people will take that text and talk about how Oh, look at this. It's beautiful that Timothy learned the faith from his grandmother and his mother. And that's referenced earlier on. And that's true. He was taught, in terms of a human way, the catechesis of the faith by his mother and grandmother. But Paul is not here saying, be assured because you learned this from your mother and grandmother. He is saying, you must remember whom you have learned these doctrines from. You have learned them from the Holy Scriptures. And therefore you have learned them from the very mouth of God. And so he is saying, on the basis of the testimony of God, you have assurance from the sure word of the Scriptures. And notice at the end of verse 15, we have that the Scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Wise for salvation. Salvation is by wisdom alone. It's by faith alone. It's by understanding and believing doctrine alone. The scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation. How? Well, through the instrumentality of faith. Through understanding and believing the content of the scriptures. 
And that faith is in Christ Jesus. It's in what the Scriptures say, and it's in Christ Jesus. Is there a difference between those two things? It's the same object. The Scriptures are the very mind of Christ. And so when you believe the Scriptures, you are believing Christ. And so, your faith is in Christ Jesus. Your faith is in the Scriptures. Your faith is in the Word of God. And they're able to make you wise for salvation. And so, we're told here in verse 16 things to consider about the Scriptures. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. That list right there about what the Scriptures are profitable for fits into the work of an elder that follows after in chapter 4 and that has been hinted at earlier on in this chapter with this idea of following the doctrine and manner of life that Paul had, which is the training process. So all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Now, inspiration sounds like breathing in. Okay, So the Greek is, is breathing out. It's breathed out by God. When you talk, unless you're trying a particular miming trick, you're typically breathing out. Uh, you could breathe in, but typically people, when they speak, they are breathing out. And so all Scripture is given by the breathing out of God. He's speaking. It's His words. And it's profitable. What's it profitable for? It's profitable for getting the doctrine, for getting the teaching. It's profitable for getting the reproof, or you could translate that conviction, being, being shown where you're wrong. It's profitable for correction, being shown what to do instead, what to put on. So being shown what to put off and being shown what to put on. And it's profitable for instruction, or it's pedia, it's training in righteousness. And so, the Word of God is profitable for giving doctrine, giving teaching on what to put off, showing you what to, what to change, and, and showing you how to change it, what the positive is, and giving training in that. Why, or for what end? So that the man of God may be complete. And so, you have, the Scriptures are not profitable for doctrine and rebuke and correction and training so the man of God can be incomplete but for a complete man it is sufficient for good works that the man of God may be complete thoroughly equipped not partially equipped thoroughly equipped for every good work not for most good works not for almost every good work with a few missing for every good work. The scriptures are sufficient for every good work. Chapter 4, verse 1. I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at His appearing in His kingdom. Preach the word. That word, I charge you, it's, it's the word witness in Greek. It's martyr. Okay. It's the word, it's this idea of through witness bearing, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, and then information about Jesus Christ, preach the word. This is a telling Timothy to do something with an oath. Paul is swearing here about the truth of his testimony. He's saying, Timothy, 
God is watching me. The Lord Jesus Christ is watching me. And I am bearing witness to you. You have got to preach the word. And it flows from this argument of the sufficiency of Scripture, saying, look, the Scriptures are sufficient for doctrine, rebuke, correction, and instruction to make the man of God complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Therefore, preach the Word. Don't preach something else. Preach the Word. The sufficient Word. It is profitable and sufficient. Preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Preach the Word when? In season and out of season. In other words, at the time that is season and the time that is non-season. These are compliments. This is a theme today. The scriptures are full of compliments. They're full of things that complete each other. A and non-A. And so what we have is this laying out here. All times are times for the preaching of the Word. All times are times for the preaching of the Word. The elder's task is to preach the Word. To convince, to rebuke, to exhort. These words, except for the word for rebuke, are back from the earlier set. This idea of giving speech that the Scriptures themselves have. The Scriptures are for doctrine, reproof, and correction, and instruction. And here we have this idea that, hey, the Word is powerful in preaching to convince, rebuke, and exhort. And so you're supposed to do this with all long-suffering. The word long-suffering in the Greek is literally just with much pain. Is the beginning macro. Much pain. So with much suffering, preach the word. And so Puritans take that and they get this idea of, of preaching painfully. Now, it might be painful to listen to me preach, and that's your problem. But the idea of preaching painfully is painstaking effort to teach not what you feel like, but to teach what the scriptures say. And that's the painstaking type of preaching. It's the preaching with much suffering. So convince, rebuke, exhort with all much suffering and teaching. And that word teaching there is the same word earlier on that says the scriptures are profitable for doctrine. That's the same word there. It's this idea of the doctrine, the didache. So the giving of the doctrine in the preaching So, the activities that the Word is useful for are the activities that the preacher is to do. And he's supposed to do it with the Word. He's called to preach the Word and to use the Word for the things that the Word is profitable for. Verse 3. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. You remember in Titus, sound doctrine? It was the cleansing Word. It's the healing Word. It's the same thing here. They will not endure healing doctrine. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you be watchful in all things. Endure afflictions. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. The ministry is the ministry of preaching the word. Now, the office of evangelist does not continue now. It was a revelatory office. Prophets, evangelists, apostles, they have all ceased. We have the completed scriptures. But 
to the degree that an evangelist is called to the work of preaching, that still applies to the office of elder. And so the fulfilling of the ministry of an elder, preaching the word, this instruction applies to an elder. Now, why is there a warning about heaping up teachers and turning away, not enduring the sound word, the the cleansing word? Because everybody wants to be liked. And when you are called to preach the word, Not everybody likes what you have to say. I've lost a lot of friends. And I'll tell you what. Almost all of them were lost over doctrine. And so there's a call to be watchful. And to endure afflictions. so that the elder can fulfill his ministry of preaching. Now, in the reading of that text, that is a warning that the office is not for the faint of heart. And at the same time, Proverbs 11.30 says, The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he who wins souls is wise. Psalm 118, verse 26, says, Save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. God is the Lord, and he has given us light. Bind the sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will praise you. You are my God, I will exalt you. The blessing on the one who comes in the name of the Lord and the fact that that results in light and the fact that then the sacrifice of praise is given in the New Covenant context coming forth from that. There is a blessing on the preaching of the Word. They who win souls are wise. Now, Daniel... Chapter 12, verse 2 says the following, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. There's the resurrection of the dead in the book of Daniel. Verse 3, Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the heavens. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. There is an eternal weight of glory in the preaching of the word and the turning away of sinners from their death. It requires wisdom And it results in fruit 
It is of the tree of life and an eternal weight of glory. Now you may wonder, how do you get to that place? First John chapter 2 talks to people at various places in their walk. Verse 12 says, I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for His name's sake. So children in the faith, their sins are forgiven. Even the littlest knowledge of God is eternal life. The littlest bit of the knowledge of God is the instrument of justification. Verse 13, I write to you, fathers, because you have known Him who is from the beginning. So, the children in the faith have their sins forgiven. Fathers in the faith, they know God. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. Had an overcoming, a conquering of Satan by the young men. They have learned to fight. They have begun to engage in spiritual warfare. I write to you, little children, because you have known the Father. Well, wasn't it said of the fathers that they know He who is from the beginning? So they know the attributes of God. They know the eternality of God. They have a depth of the knowledge of God. But even the little ones know the Father. If you have eternal life, you know God. John 17, 3, this is eternal life. To know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom He has sent. Even the children who are saved, those who are least in the faith, have the knowledge of God. But also the fathers do. Verse 14, I have written to you fathers because you have known Him who is from the beginning. Isn't that exactly the same as what it said in verse 13? Let me double check. I write to you, fathers, because you have known Him who is from the beginning. Now back to verse 14. I have written to you, fathers, because you have known Him who is from the beginning. The only thing that changes is the tense of the writing. The idea there is that the fathers know God. The fathers know God. This is a Hebraism. It's an emphasis. How do you get mature in the faith? By knowing God. How are you a child in the faith? How are your sins forgiven? I'll write to you little children because you've known the Father. You know God. And so spiritual life begins with the knowledge of God. It is the goal of the knowledge of God. It is the means to grow. The knowledge of God begins our eternal life. It is our eternal life. It is the means for growing in the possession of eternal life. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the wicked one. Why can they overcome the wicked one? Because they're strong. Why are they strong? Because the word of God abides with them. And the presence of God gives victory over enemies. How does God abide with them? The word of God dwells in them. That is the presence of God that gives strength. That is the knowledge of God. So the difference between a child, a young man, and a father is the degree to which they are mature in the knowledge of God. How do you become fit for the office of elder? You mature in the knowledge of God, and you apply it. You teach it. Young men have overcome the wicked one. 
They've gained self-mastery. They're not children anymore because they can govern themselves, which makes it so you can start to display government over other people in the home, which gives opportunity to be able to become fathers, to be able to govern in the public spheres. The conquest of the devil comes through strength. It comes through the knowledge of God. The knowledge of God results in strength from the abiding presence of the word in the believer, and the strength from the abiding presence of the word results in a conquest of the devil. The wise see that the knowledge of God is the source of life, the instrument for forgiveness, and the source of strength to overcome the darkness. And it is the end, the goal in itself. The wise are steeped in the knowledge of God and seek to continue to gain more of it. In the book of Job, Elihu comes to Job. He is the last one to come and rebuke Job. And he's talking to Job, and one of the things he says, you know, Job, you, you keep acting like you're righteous and like God is wrong to bring this judgment on you. And you know, God sends trials for chastisement to encourage repentance. And when one falls and has not heard the messenger of pain, God can be merciful and send a preacher. Here's what he says. In Job 33, verse 23, he says, If there is a messenger for him, a mediator, one among a thousand, to show man his uprightness, then he is gracious to him and says, Deliver him from going down to the pit. I have found a ransom. William Perkins has a two-book two book. Puritans like to have books inside of books. I don't, I don't know. The first book in this book about the calling of a minister is an exposition of Job 33, verses 23 to 24. And he just takes it and breaks it down. And he says, a, an elder, a pastor, a preacher is a messenger. Brings a message from God. And he is an interpreter and he brings the word of redemption. He talks about that being the work, that there's also this rareness to men who are wise. He says one in a thousand. Now, this is the time of Elihu. This is around the time of the life of Abraham. We have, in the time of Moses, a call to have one in ten to be elders. And we have a time of greater gifting now in the New Covenant era. But still, it's difficult to find wise men. And so they ought to be valued as rare and precious. And what they do is they show the uprightness of God to people. And in showing the uprightness of God, the righteousness of God, they make the sins of the individual plain to them and also make the righteousness of God in the gospel plain. So the preaching of law and gospel for the salvation of souls is put forward. And that is the work of a preacher. And that showing of the righteousness of God is used for graciousness to the man that God desires to save. And he delivers that man from going down in the pit and having a ransom. Now, if a preacher has a blessing 
and has a calling to give a message. And there's a need for salvation and for the glory of God to be shown in the earth. Then there's a commissioning that occurs. There's a famous text in Isaiah, the sixth chapter, where Isaiah has a vision and he sees God. And in seeing God, he says, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. In this vision of God, right, we we just read in Job about the idea that the preacher goes out to show the uprightness of God. Well, here Isaiah sees God. He, He sees the holiness of God. There's an awareness of God's righteousness. And his response is that he is undone. He is fearful and he is dejected. And he thinks, I personally, I personally am unclean. And Everybody I know is unclean. And so this particular uncleanness and the uncleanness of the group makes it so that there could be a hopelessness about salvation. And what happens in verse 6, one of the seraphim that's around God is seeing the glory of God there. One of the angels flies to Isaiah and he has in his hand a searing hot coal holding it in tongs. But he places it to the lips of Isaiah. Think about your lips. Kissing a coal. Not just a cold black coal. Searing hot coal. It is placed upon his lips. And it doesn't burn in the way of hurting, but it is used because when you put when you put a burning hot thing against a wound, what is that about? Cauterizing and cleaning, right? Preventing infection. The lips are unclean, and so the coal is brought to the lips, the very part that is unclean. And the idea is a cleansing. It's a symbol for cleansing. And so God cleanses by the work of a mediator, here symbolized by an angel. And the response in the mouth being touched by this cleansing agent is not a scream of pain. But instead, What is said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin purged. Isaiah also heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Isaiah has been cleansed of sin and being aware of the forgiveness of sin and hearing that there is a need. Rather than dejection and fear, he is consoled by forgiveness And in the hearing of a commissioning, he responds by saying, Here I am. Send me. And God then says, Go and tell this people. And there's a message. The job of the preacher is not to make up his own message. 
The job of the preacher is not to have a false humility that doesn't allow for the forgiveness of sins. The job of the preacher is to accept the forgiveness in Christ, to acknowledge the need of the work, to see qualification in self, and to be willing to do the work, and to say, here am I, send me. And so the commissioning by need and the call of the church through nomination, election, and the setting aside of a man for that holy work is the process by which a man is put into that office. I would ask you men who are considering public office to listen to what Isaiah 50 says. The Lord has given me the tongue of the learned that I should know how to speak a word in season to him who is weary. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to hear as the learned. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious, nor did I turn away. I gave my back to those who struck me, and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. If you want qualification, if you want competence, if you want ability to do the work, pray that the Lord would give you the words of the learned, that he would cause you to hear and make it so that you too can stand up and take suffering for the sake of the truth, that he would give you courage and fortitude of soul. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he who wins souls is wise. Let's pray. Oh, I'll give opportunity. Father, I ask that you would take the word and that you would build us up in wisdom, that you would give us strength of soul and qualification. You would help us to see the work of preaching as a noble thing, that fathers would desire their sons to be preachers, that sons would be honored to see their fathers as preachers, and that your word would be seen as the precious thing that it is, that the glorious calling and work of speaking your word would be a thing that men are eager to do and that men would desire to hear your word, would run far to hear it and would be humbled by it and apply it. Father, we ask these things for your glory. Amen. Amen. Comments, questions, objections from the voting members and those with speaking rights. Mr. Nye? Mr. Cody, because we're 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 all engaged, I think, in speaking with uh, Arminians in in our lives, and I I personally, with family members and others, you know, speak with. Is there a good um, kind of compact argument of to the, the understanding of the Arminian that okay, if God has uh, elected some to salvation? and not others if the person that ultimately chooses not to have God in their lives not to be saved um, how is that not on God's how is God not the one with quote um, blood on his hands if that person goes to hell yes that's a great question so the question is um, how are there any good resources for being able to quickly communicate to the Arminian how God observing the person acting in their free will to reject him 
doesn't alleviate their concern about God's responsibility, so to speak. Okay. Um, God and Evil by Gordon Clark. It's a 30-page booklet. I think I have like 30,000 of them over here. Uh, uh, God and Evil by Gordon Clark, and he has an excellent philosophical sort of breakdown of that. He has another work that's longer called Predestination, which captures and pulls together the scripture texts about predestination in an excellent way. So if somebody is concerned about it being unbiblical, um, that work, Predestination by Gordon Clark, is excellent for going through many texts about it. And um, on the other side of it, if they're concerned about sort of the logic of it and how it works, he deals with scripture but also tries to show how um, the unclear thinking sort of breaks down in a more concise uh, little booklet called God and Evil, The Problem Solved by Gordon Clark. So I would strongly recommend those works. I'm happy to give you a copy. Thank you. Okay. Mr. Nye? Thank you for your teaching on the race. Um, regarding Pelagius, I wanted to uh, give a little bit more information regarding um, what he taught and believed concerning those who needed or those who had fallen, quote. Mm -hmm. So Christ, the place did not believe in any sort of substitution or atonement or his death didn't forgive sins or anything. It was only governmental in the sense that like it showed a person how they could avoid sin and by their obedience um, stop sinning and live righteously. So there was no like forgiveness through any sort of grace. Um, any sort of grace obtained or shown through the, the work of Christ. So there's like no forgiveness that Christ purchased. And, uh, and Charles Finney taught the same thing. So I just wanted to, like, I, I know that you knew that. I just wanted to. Thank you. And so um, I think the, um, the idea of Christ as an example, as the principal thing that Pelagius focused on for Christ's work, yes, he did believe that there was a forgiveness for sins. Um, and he would make reference to forgiveness of sins having to do something with the death of Christ. And he would talk about God having forgiveness of sins and there being some sort of benefit relating to Christ from that. But there's certainly nothing from uh, Pelagius through you know, sources that refer to him stating that he believed in the substitutionary atonement. Absolutely. And so, um, yeah, thank you. So there, there was a Pelagius teaching about, like, forgiveness being related to the work of Christ like as opposed to forgiveness being achieved through through forsaking evil and doing good I'm not saying those are opposed I mean okay. some sort of self-atonement or something like that I'm yeah. not trying to say that they just didn't teach that there's uh, you know we're talking about people talking about sure. Pelagius right and so uh, but I, I think that uh, yes Pelagius did not, there's no reason to believe that Pelagius had a proper view of the atonement. Yeah. Thank you. Any other comments?